If you've been a Christian for a while, you're probably very familiar with our passage this morning in Mark's Gospel, Chapter 2. Uh, probably heard it preached once or twice in your life, read it yourself, or just remember it from when you were a kid in Sunday school. Uh, even if you're not a Christian uh, and you didn't grow up in a church, you might be vaguely familiar with Mark chapter 2. It's, it's one of those kind of iconic passages that we really see Christ in his, in his uniqueness as he's revealing his power and his identity. It's just one of those passages that are phenomenal. And, and Mark, as a great storyteller, fills this, um, this episode with a lot of great elements of storytelling, right? It's, it's got a, a little bit of humor in it. It's got excitement. It's got a, a plot twist to it. There's conflict. And at the end, things work out. So it kind of sounds like the arc of most movies we might want to might watch. So Mark 2 is a favorite for those reasons, and that's why I think most people are somewhat familiar with Mark. Uh, I have a reason for liking it that's a little bit uh, unique. Uh, you see, Mark 2 is the first chapter of the Bible I, or I can remember teaching as a youth pastor back in the late 80s and 90s. It was part of a, a church plant, and uh, we just started as a cafeteria church, and me and Ace, the drummer in my band, were the youth pastors. And almost, almost to a person, all the kids in our youth ministry were non-believers. didn't come from any Christian household. So we were always trying to make scriptures come alive to them, make them understand it and its relevancy. And we were teaching through the Gospel of Mark at Ace's dad's place uh, every Thursday night, Bible study at 7 o'clock. And we would skip chapters, so Mark 2 was my chapter. So I remember I had a great idea that, oh, I know how I'm going to make this passage come alive to a lot of these kids who, some of, half of them were not Christians. They all came from non-Christian homes. I knew how I was going to make this, just grab their attention. So my grand idea was that in the verse that talks about them tearing open the roof, I'd have these kids kind of throw sawdust and little bits of wood. Um, Ace's dad's place was like a condo, so there was a loft. So the main living room was here, and there was a staircase and the loft area here. So I had these kids hang out here, and when I read the passage about the wood or the roof, they'd throw over sawdust and bits of wood. And then the passage, and we'll get to it, where the paralytic man comes down, uh, Ace's dad also uh, had a tuxedo shop. So we, I don't know if we asked, but we borrowed one of the mannequins. <laughs> I hope we asked, because we drilled eye holes or loops into the head and the feet. And we put rope through it. So at the point where the paralytic man comes down, they were supposed to, right, lower this mannequin. We had dressed up in Bible clothes or whatever, you know. And I thought this was just going to be great. I'd be reading it and teaching it, and the kids would see this happening right now. They'd all get saved. You know, it's going to be awesome or something like that. Well, they were a little bit excited. I guess they didn't anticipate the weight of a mannequin because when it came to that point, I'm just expecting this amazing Shekinah glory moment that they'd all connect. <laughs> the kid holding the head didn't account for the weight, so the rope just went right through his hand. And the kid holding the feet, I guess he had the presence of mind, but it probably was better if he just let it fall because then the mannequin just would have went poomp. But he gripped onto the rope. So as the head swung out, this thing acted like a pendulum, and the mannequin swam, came swinging down, and the head of the mannequin clocked a kid in the forehead. Kid goes back. <laughs> so it wasn't the Shekinah glory I was witnessing at the moment. I was witnessing, like, lawsuit in process right here. And I swear the kid was out for, like, three seconds. He was, like, still. Then he kind of came, too. And needless to say... You, you're never going to recover after that. So it was like, all right, Bible study's over. Let's go get snacks. <laughs> so I also like Mark 2 for my own personal reasons, and that story being one of them. So if you have a Bible, open up to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. Uh, let me uh, pray as we begin to look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. Jesus, we thank you that we are not reading words that are of no relevance to us Though they've been penned down thousands of years ago, 
They have as much relevance to our lives today as to the very first people who read it for the first time. Your word is living and active, and it doesn't require mannequins or props to make it come alive. Your spirit does that. And so we pray for the work of your spirit to continue to do that, to make your word alive in our hearts that we might more fully worship you and appreciate you and love you. And maybe for those who, who the word is not alive in their hearts, maybe for the first time, they would see the power of the gospel unveiled before them. That, that as they are reading these pages, they recognize someone's reading them back. Lord, we ask that you do that thing in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark's gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is what we're looking at this morning. And when he returned, Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days. It was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, verse 8, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. That last expression, that last sentiment, we never saw anything like this, is an expression that you're going to become very familiar with as you study the Gospel of Mark. I mean, let, let's just get used to it. Whenever Jesus is the key factor in an equation, you're in for a ride. Just look back at uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 27, 28. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Or look at chapter 1, verse 33, just a few verses down. Mark says, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Skip down to verse 45 of chapter 1. But he, the leper, when he was healed, went out and began to talk freely about this. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. Jesus' fame is spreading everywhere quickly and so much so that he can't even enter a town without crowds and mobs showing up to hear him and to see what he'll do next you see this is deliberate on mark's part mark is a great storyteller and he remembers the kind of trajectory setting verse of his proclamation in chapter 1 verse 15 when jesus comes into the city and says the time is fulfilled the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe the gospel. And for the next 35 verses, Mark is careful to record event after event of this kingdom happening and what it looks like when this king brings his rule to bear. In verses 16 to 20, he walks to men and says, leave everything, follow after me. And without hesitation, they drop everything to follow after Jesus Christ. In a synagogue, an evil spirit comes out and with a word he casts it out. 
He goes to someone's house and his mother is, is feverish and ill and just touches her and the fever leaves her. He runs into lepers. Leprosy was the most feared disease of all. Not only for what it meant physically, but what people thought it meant spiritually. And he goes up and touches the lepers and heals them. Mark, and all this is just in one chapter. Mark is trying to make it clear when he said on the lips of Jesus that the kingdom is at hand. We know very much what that kingdom is going to look like. And so story after story after story, Mark is lining it up. And it's not just the stories and the scenes that Mark's putting together. It's the actual words he uses. If you were here last week, Eric taught you that the word immediately happens frequently in the Gospel of Mark. Forty times the word immediately appears. Amazing is another word you're going to have to get used to in the Gospel of Mark. It appears ten times. Amazing, astonished, astounded, awestruck. Wherever Jesus is at in the Gospel of Mark, things are immediate and things are amazing. And Mark is intending to grab his audience. If Mark was alive today, he'd be an action, action film director of some sort. He wants people to understand what he's getting at. Which is, by the way, why this Gospel is a great gospel to read if you're new to reading your Bible. If you're new to Christianity, Mark's a fantastic gospel to start with. It's, it, the action's fast-paced. He's straightforward. He's very clear. In the first eight chapters, Mark wants you to get one point amongst all these stories is that Jesus Christ is the king of kings, and this is what his kingdom rule looks like. And then in 9 through 16, he wants to show, yet this king, in contradiction to all the kings they were very aware of, would himself die on behalf of his subjects so they wouldn't have to. So Mark is putting out a very riveting story to grip the people who read this gospel. So how does Mark 2, verses 1 through 12, fit into that? What, what part, what role does it play? Um, and, and in this account, we're seeing through Mark's gospel, Jesus' healing of the paralytic reveals two things. So I'm kind of giving you the, the roadmap of the sermon today. It's revealing two things. What are those elements of real faith and what is real need? And we're going to see that very clearly in our text this morning. What are those elements of real faith? There are many more, but in Mark 2, these are some of those elements of real faith we're going to see. And then what is real need? Real faith. Let me give you the definition. It, it is uh, actions that orbit around the person of Christ. It's an odd phrase. I'll explain that later. But there are actions that orbit around the person of Christ. And we're going to see that right now. Let's look at um, Mark's gospel. Verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Now, when I was studying this, I think Monday evening or Wednesday evening, I thought that's an odd thing to make a note of. I mean, we know Mark is a vivid storyteller, but why even say no more room at the door? Until I, re I recognized back in chapter 1, verse 33, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And in chapter 2, verse 4, there was no more room at the door. What's Mark doing? He's saying, look, Jesus is growing and so much, everyone's together. The whole city's at the door, chapter 2. Now there's not even room at the door anymore. The idea is that crowds, that this momentum is gathering. You know, a good film, you get a sense that there's action that's starting to build. You're seeing things happen and percolate. That's what Mark is doing. There's not even room at the door anymore. Then he gives us this beautiful picture, this little side note in verse 3 to 5. What a beautiful picture it is uh, of these uh, four friends. You see, if you were a paralytic in biblical times... That was tantamount to a death sentence. Right? They didn't have like an ADA, an American with Disabilities Act. 
They didn't view people with disabilities in the way we would today. There was no compassion from them, certainly not from the state, rarely from individuals. If you were a paralytic, that was a death sentence. You weren't fit to work the fields. You weren't, you weren't able to fight in the military, and you couldn't serve the wealthy. So what was left for you was basically beg. Beg and depend on the kindness of strangers. And, and in any era, that's, that's hard to come by, particularly in an era where your lot in life was viewed to be a judgment from God upon you. So here is this paralytic man. But this paralytic man is blessed because he's got at least four friends that are not going to leave him behind. So often we can read past these things, and we're always going to the, the, the fascinating things like the roof being ripped open and the paralytic coming down. But the, sometimes it's the simple things that we should be considering. Like, these guys love their friend, and they wouldn't leave him behind. I can almost see with my mind's eye, imagine the scene of these four guys just hoofing it down the dusty streets of Capernaum, just each one on a corner of this mat, and this guy bouncing off up and down, holding on for dear life, and he's smiling from ear to ear because he's excited. Because they're going to see Jesus. He's probably never seen him before. He's heard about him. This is the man that, that cures leprosy. This is the man that casts out demons. This is somebody he wants to see. This is his day. And here are his friends, you know, sweating and huffing and, and running with this mat, you know. And they're excited to get to the house. It's a beautiful picture. And that, by the way, that, okay, so that's element one. There's this moving towards others to get them to Jesus. And I, don't, I, I wish I had a cute one-word thing to give that to you. I don't. It's just that. How do you explain this excitement that these friends had? They said, whatever it is, it's Jesus. I want to get you to him. And they brought their friend with them. Sweating, maybe not going to get the seats they want, but they want to bring their friend. So this real element of dynamic faith is they're moving towards others to get them to Jesus. They're excited about that. So if anyone's got a good one-word way to say that for the next service, give that to me. I need it. But we see this in John 1, verse 41. Andrew meets Jesus, and the first thing he does, he goes to his brother Peter. He says, look, I've, I've, just, met the, I've just met the Messiah. You've got to come see him. It's not unlike the woman at the well in John chapter 4. After meeting Jesus, she goes and evangelizes her entire village such that the whole village comes out and then says to her, we don't need to hear your testimony anymore because now we're hearing him. This is not unlike you just sharing your faith with a classmate or coworker, or, or moving across the street to share your faith with your neighbors. There's this contagious desire in, in faith in Christ that you want other people to know him. Yes, there's a little bit of concern, maybe there's a little bit of shame, but faith wants to move people to Jesus. The second element we see in, in this real faith in these men is persistence, right? Verse 4, and when, the, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. <laughs> and when they made an opening, they let him down on his bed. If an opening can't be found in Jesus, real faith is determined to find one. When these guys showed up, there was probably not an instance where they thought, oh, forget it. They looked at the crowd. They looked at the roof. They figured out, I know how we're going to get this done. And in those time periods, most homes had a staircase on the outside because the home itself was small. So you had like a way to get up outside. You see this like in urban settings, like in New York, you have an ups, uh, what do they call them, a garden on the roof? A garden on the roof. What they, somebody said a word, a terrace. Is that what it is? Okay, we're not in New York, right? We're California. So we're garden on the roof, let's call it that. So they knew that's how we're going to do this. Pers faith is persistent. 
They say, okay, there's a roof. We can deal with this. And I love the picture that real faith doesn't let obstacles get in its way when it comes to getting to Jesus. And it's not just roofs that cause the problem. Mark chapter 10, if you're a note taker, write this down. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 and following. The blind beggar, Jesus is coming down the street and all he can do is hear the crowd and he asks somebody, what's all, what's all the commotion? What's going on? They say, it's Jesus. And the crowd, again, ignoring this man's need, but the man pushes through the crowd. Probably a very ex scary experience, but in faith, he says, I need to get to this Jesus. So the crowd's in his way, but he doesn't care. He pushes through. Social taboo is another one, or ritual taboo, sorry, uh, is another one. In Mark chapter 5, we have the woman who had a, a, an issue with bleeding, a hemorrhage for 12 years. Mark is careful to let us know, or maybe it's Luke, that the doctors could, could do nothing for her, and she suffered terribly at the hands of the doctors. But when she saw Jesus, she knew, this is the one that can heal me. In that culture, you were unclean. Blood was an unclean thing. She was ritually unclean. And yet, even through that, she pushed through. Even recognizing her own uncleanliness, she wanted to touch Jesus. And then the last one, one that maybe we can relate to more, social embarrassment. Mark chapter 7, the Syrophoenician woman. There was an embarrassing scene between her and Jesus. She had no right, no claim to this rabbi from Israel. She was, she was a Gentile. She was a Syrophoenician. She, she had nothing to do with Israel. There was nothing that she could bank on that Jesus would love her and do what she asked. And as a matter of fact, Jesus actually does something kind of astounding in their interaction. It's almost embarrassing for this woman. But just like Mark 2, he does something unexpected to cause this person's faith to be ignited more truly than it had been before. The point is, biblical faith, one of the dynamics of biblical faith is there's this persistence to it. It's not easily dissuaded. It's not easily deterred. When situations get tough, it gets tougher. It's persistent. It presses in. And then finally, the third element of, of faith, of, of what Mark's showing us about real faith, is that it is sacrificial. Now, lest you think people in biblical times went around tearing up people's roofs, they didn't. Somebody has to fix this roof. It's going to cost somebody to fix this roof. And chances are it's going to cost the guys who destroyed it. Now, roofs back then weren't like ours. So it just was clearly, it's basically you had logs and then you had uh, branches and thistles and all that put on top of it. And then good solid mud that was pressed down to keep out the rain. So it wasn't as sturdy as ours, but it was pretty good. Maybe every year they'd have to put new dirt or whatever it would be. But these guys would dig through that, tear all that off. So either they had to fix it or they had to pay someone to fix it. Now keep in mind, if they're friends with a paralytic, chances are these were beggars too. They didn't have the money to do this. But they recognized whatever the cost it would cost them to fix this roof was not half as much as the cost of not bringing their friend to Jesus. And said, this is worth it. This is one of the reasons we tithe in a church. Because we recognize the cost of not bringing the gospel to the far reaches of the earth, the cost of not helping the gospel flourish through our finances, is not half as much as it costs us to give. And so these men sacrificed for their friend. They broke social taboo, decorum, probably broke their finances as well, to make sure their friend got to Jesus. There's a lot here. So real faith has this dynamism about it, right? If it wants, uh, it wants others to come to know Jesus, it's persistent and it'll pay whatever price to make that happen. Now, if we define real faith as um, active trust, 
active trust, I like that definition, then Jesus himself models these elements of faith for us. Right? Philippians chapter 2, it says, He did not consider equality God with God something to be grasped, but laid it aside, putting upon himself the form of a human, and came down. He moved towards others. And the Gospels, all four of them, if they're nothing if not a persistent account of Jesus' pursuit of his people, even if they would reject him. And ultimately we know he paid the ultimate sacrifice to reconcile man with God. So we see all these elements in the life and ministry of Christ. But notice I said earlier that, that real faith orbits, this odd phrase, orbits around our actions that orbit around Christ. Now, that's an odd phrase, but it can't be as odd as verse 5. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith. Oh, no. Now we all know faith is not something that's physical that you can see. It's not an object that you can perceive. It's not doesn't take up physical space and weigh a certain amount. It is not something you see. So when Jesus, the text says he saw their faith, they're trying to get a key point across here. Is that it indicates that what is a true faith are actions, it results in actions, that, that when you see them, you recognize that there is actual true faith behind those actions. That makes sense? So true faith results in external actions such that those who see them recognize that as faith. So Jesus saw the action of these men and recognized it as faith. But this active trust, these actions orbit around the person and character of Jesus. So we want to move people to Christ. We're persistent in coming after Christ. We will sacrifice so that we can know Christ. It's not an ambiguous faith. And the reason that's important is we often hear the phrase, common today, we're people of faith. Right? You've heard that expression, right? I have no idea what that means. If you really be honest about it, I'm people of active trust. The necessary question is, well, active trust in what? Well, I'm just people of faith. We are people of active trust. Well, in that definition, everyone's a person of faith because everyone's extending some kind of action or active trust. We are people of faith, and our object is Jesus Christ. Just to say that I'm a person of faith is kind of like this ambiguous, spiritual, contentless jello, you know? It's, just, it's there. It's kind of wiggly. I'm not sure what form it takes. It kind of sees through it. I don't know what this is. But the kind of faith that we're seeing here has a substance. That substance revolves around Christ. It's got a, it's got a tastiness to it almost. You know, if I can run with the food metaphor, it's like steak, right? Faith in Christ is like steak, but it just being an ambiguous faith is like jello. It's got taste. Steak has taste to it. it there's something juicy about it. There's something there. Yes, I am hungry. I skipped breakfast. Let, let, me, move, let me move on. Let me just recap and move on. So this, this dynamism of biblical faith is that there's this desire to get, it moves towards others to bring them to Jesus. And it's persistent. It's not easily persuaded or dissuaded. It's not easily deterred. And there's a sacrificial component to it. And we see all these in these men. Now that's half of what our passage has for it. The other half is this. In one sense, you could say these are kind of halves of the gospel. Real faith is showing this change, this orientation to Christ. But the other half is knowing what your real need is. And that's what verses uh, 6 and following is about, or verse 5 and following is about. Verse 5, um, verse 4, they, they, they see this man, paralytic, coming down on the mat. Now, I just can't imagine this scene. I tried to, and that didn't work out too well. But if it were to happen today, I would be speechless. 
I mean, for one, I think our ushers would quickly go upstairs and get the people off the roof. And at that point, I think our service would be done, kind of like my Bible study was done. I wouldn't know what to do. But Jesus, in this passage, verse 5, he doesn't miss a beat, does he? Although it seems like he does miss the point, right? My son, your sins are forgiven. And again, if this were today, the man on the mat would say, um, uh, that's nice and all, but are, are you seeing me here? Thank you, but are you seeing me? Paralytic, paralyzed from the waist down, I'm a beggar. Are you seeing my real situation? And here's Mark's point. Jesus is seeing him more clearly than he sees himself. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the only one in this entire episode that really sees this man's most important need. I think even for us, I think even we're tempted to say as we read this, man, come on, Jesus, isn't it obvious why these guys came to see you? Right? We're, we're even tempted to say things like, yeah, yeah, okay, forgive his sin, but deal with the real problem here. Well, quickly we misunderstand what really is the real problem, and that's part of our problem. Oh, my goodness. If you could discern what the real problem is, you'd have all your problems taken care of, right? Half the time we don't know. That's why we have problems. But Jesus sees it. And Mark 2, among other passages, is written to help us realize we don't often perceive what the real problem is. And so there, in, in the probably most starkest ways possible, we have Mark 2. See, Jesus says, yes, I, I see your situation. It's clear. I know your physical challenges. And I'll get to that in a moment. But what I see, you don't see. And I see that your real trouble, your real problem, is not what you're perceiving it to be. Your real problem is the problem underneath your problems. Your real trouble is the trouble that makes all the trouble in your life. Your suffering is significant. But it's not half so significant as your sin. Pausing there because I know how politically incorrect that probably sounds. We are in a culture that will probably make everything out of our suffering. And there's a part of that that I like. We don't want to go back to moral stoicism or you just suck it up. But I think we can go too far. And this is a great corrective. Jesus is saying, yeah, you're a paralytic. And as a result of that, you are poor, destitute, and impoverished. You have, you have friends, but that's about it. But that's not your real problem. That's, that's not as significant as your real problem, and that's sin. Boy, there's a part of that. If, if there's a sense in you that you just don't like hearing that, I get you. I want to read to you uh, Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross. He's talking about this passage. He says this. If you find Jesus' statement offensive, please consider this. If someone says to you the main problem in your life is not what's happened to you, not what people have done to you, your main problem is the way you've responded to that. Ironically, he writes, that's empowering. Why? Because you can't do very much about what's happened to you, about what other people are doing, but you can do something about yourself. When the Bible talks about sin, it's not just referring to the bad things we do. It's not just lying or lust or whatever the case may be. It is ignoring God in the world he has made. It's rebelling against him by living without reference to him. It's saying, I will decide exactly how I live my life. And Jesus is saying, that is our main problem. Boy, that's so true. Living life as if I or you were the main point of reference. 
as if our desires, our motives, and our intentions ought to set the agenda for reality is not reality at all. But that's how each and every human being, apart from God, lives their life. You see, this paralytic, he, he knew his need at one level. and He wanted to be made whole, but he didn't realize that he needed to be made whole at a deeper level. Far more deeper than his legs. Now, some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called The Weight of Glory, and what he writes is just right on target here. He says, our Lord finds that our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, he writes. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the beach, we are far too easily pleased. In other words, Jesus loves this paralytic man enough to not give him what he thinks he needs to be happy. Wow. Jesus loves this paralytic enough to not give him, at least initially in this passage, what he thinks he needs to be happy. See, the paralytic man is laying there on this mat as he's coming down, and he's expecting what's just going to happen. If I could just walk again. He's got visions of him walking down the street. If I could just dot, dot, dot. If you could just dot, dot, dot. If, if you could just get that promotion at work. If you could just make that much more money. If I could just get that esteem. If I could just, if I could just, if I could just. Fill in the blank with whatever your, I, if I could just and I'll be happy is. That's what's going on here. Now it's not wrong for this man to feel if I could just walk again. That's not asking for much in the grand scheme of things compared to the luxuries and comforts we have. But even still, Jesus knew that's not enough. Now, this man would feel the joy, right? Obviously. He, he obviously would feel the joy. And it would be a profound joy. But, you know, in two or four months, that joy will be gone. It just That's the way things of this life are, right? It's like the th you watch your kids. Whatever they really wanted last Christmas, they have no idea this Christmas what it even was. But that's the thing they needed. It's the same kind of dynamic. Because the things of this world fade. And by the way, eventually, this man's legs would wither again. Right? Whether by old age or disease or some kind of accident, this man's legs would fail him again and then the thing he banked his hopes on would be gone and he would be in the same situation. This man's longings aren't deep enough. He's too easily satisfied. He's, he's put his hopes on the things of this world, things that can be taken away and Jesus says that, that that's not enough. Get this, human discontent, whether you're a Christian or not, human discontent goes too deep for the things of this life to fulfill. Human discontent goes too deep for the things of this life to fulfill. And you don't have to look further than our own celebrities, right? I mean, it's like a, a parade of tragedy. And, and I love, I, I just love watching these guys who, they're funny, they're entertaining, they make these great films of adventure and life. I appreciate that. But when you look behind the curtain, their, their lives, who we would think have everything, fame, fortune, comfort, all those things. But so often it's just a, a parade of tragedy. And, and, and this columnist wrote this beautiful, she's not a Christian, but just so captured it. Um, this is written in the, in the 90s, so it's a little bit dated. Her name's Cynthia Heimel. She used to write for the Village Voice. She writes this. I pity celebrities. No, I really do. 
Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, Barbara Streisand, so you know where this is coming from, 1990, 92, were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. You see, Sly, Bruce, and Barbara wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they wanted, that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything wonderful, that was going to make their lives beautiful, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And then this is the line she writes that's just a punch in the gut. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he gives you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you're emptier than ever. Wow. So chapter of verse 5, Jesus is looking at this man. And he says, I am not going to play that dirty practical joke on you. I'm not going to play that game. I am going to give to you something way more profound. I'm going to give you forgiveness. I'm going to restore you to relationship to your heavenly father. I'm going to give you entrance into the kingdom. You see, this man's problem was thinking that getting his deepest wish was his real savior. That was the real need. He thought it was getting his legs back. His problem was he felt his deepest wish was going to be his salvation. And in that sense, how many of us are exactly like this man on the mat? That we are looking for our salvation from our deepest wish, and we don't realize that it's sitting right in front of us in the form of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what's going on here. So he gets his wish. He thinks life will be grand. But like all of our earthbound longings, they cannot satisfy. And Jesus is not that way, though. Jesus will not fail. Jesus cannot be taken away. Paul writes in the end of Romans chapter 8, verse 37, 39, that nothing, not heaven nor hell, death nor life, trials, nothing can take away the love of God in Christ. And Jesus knows this man's legs can be taken away. And he wants to give him something far more important. And that's eternal life. You know, uh, last night, about 8 o'clock at night, I was going over my notes, preparing for this morning. And my dog, Napoleon, was sitting out uh, in, in, earlier when my family was gone. He got himself a, from the garbage a crusty old stale pizza crust that, that we had thrown away a couple days earlier. And he had gotten it and buried it in the dirt. And when we came home, he pulled it out like he was going to feast with us. And we were like, no, you can't eat that. We can't eat human food. And so there was this odd tension. He turns into Cujo whenever we take away human food. He just gets real angry and snaps at us. And so we had him outside the house. And so when I was studying in the garage, I've got this little corner in the garage. I was looking out. And there he was, sitting in the cold, in the dark, on the concrete, kind of in the dirt with this crusty, stale pizza crust thing. And he wouldn't come into the house on a warm couch where there's light and the kids and Lori could love him and pet him. He'd rather hunker down over this. So an hour later, I came out to him. And, and even with me, his, I'm his master and he's cowering. He wants my affection, but he still wants this pizza crust. And I just kept petting him, you know. I was just petting my dog. And, and I felt such compassion for this guy. I was like, man, you got this beautiful, you, you know, Lori and the kids want to love you. And the house, it's, it's nice and warm in there. You're out here in the cold and the dirt. And then it occurred to me, this, he's got dog nature. <laughs> this is what dogs do. 
He wants the crusty, stale piece of crust. He has no idea of the joys of being with the family inside. And I realize that's what God has to do to all of us fundamentally. We have these dog natures, and we don't even realize the deeper desires we ought to have. And Jesus is saying to this guy, oh, your sins are forgiven. I'm going to give something to you far better than legs that help you walk. I'm bringing you into the kingdom. Now the Pharisees, verse 6 and following, they were offended and shocked. Verse 7, they say, no one can forgive sins but God alone. They're right. They're absolutely right. Dealing with the problem of all problems, the engine of sickness, of illness, despair, hopelessness, betrayal, hatred, starvation, war, famine, you name it. The very engine of that cannot be solved by human means. Try as we might, we can't do it. But God can. God can deal with it. And Jesus' words about the kingdom in, in chapter 1, verse 15, was God putting all these things on notice in the words of Tolkien, all the sad things of this world will be made untrue. And that's what Jesus was about. You know, it's easy as we read this passage in verses uh, 7, uh, why do you question these things in your heavens? Which is easier to say? And, uh, is, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And Jesus says, but so you see I have the authority to forgive sins, rise up and walk. We intuitively know kind of what the answer to that question is. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, which no one can verify, or rise, take up your mat and walk, that everyone can verify. And so we obviously know the answer to that question. But it's not easy to forgive sins. Jesus knows it's a lot harder. As a matter of fact, it's deathly hard to say your sins are forgiven. That's not the easy thing to say. That of the two statements was far harder to say because that statement cost Jesus his life. Any miracle worker can get a man to walk. Jesus was saying, no, no, that's not the hard thing. The hard thing to say to this man is your sins are forgiven because that will cost me my life. Because Jesus knows, and commentators and scholars say, even in Mark chapter 2, the, the shadow of the cross is cast because he knows he's heading to a hill called Calvary and there's a bloody cross on it for him. But he also knows that death is going to be crushed to death under the sheer weight of the glory of God in his sacrifice. And so he doesn't say to this man, just willy-nilly, your sins are forgiven. He knows that's the far harder thing to say. But he also knows we don't have the perspective and the understanding to get it. So he says, okay, so you, get up, your, get up take up your mat and walk, and it happens. And the people are astounded. I'd like to think, I'd like to think in verse 12 that when it says, and he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God. I'd like to think that included these hard-hearted Pharisees and hard-hearted religious people because we're a hard-hearted people. We can be religious. So I'd like to think that all of them were amazed, even these people who questioned Jesus. Maybe you're here questioning Jesus and you're hard-hearted and you don't believe in him. I'd love for you to be able to glorify God too. 
Because you're recognizing it's not just about being a good person. You're recognizing maybe for the first time Jesus' real purpose wasn't to make us nice. The gospel isn't about bad people being good. The gospel is about dead people being alive. It's categorically different. I pray that we all could walk out of here being amazed, saying we've never seen anything like this. We need to land this. Our experience this morning... um, Started with the process was looking at a real faith that revealed the real need. Now we need to come back the way we came, recognizing our real need. The question is, will it develop real faith? If you are a Christian, will will your understanding of God and Jesus Christ be impacted? Is there something else in your life that is a deepest desire and a wish that you're looking to as your Savior? What are your legs, if I could say that from Mark two, that you're banking on to be your hope and your happiness. I pray that you realize, like the paralytic did, that it's Jesus. And the great thing is, as we saw in Mark 2, ultimately, we get it all, right? We don't got to choose. We do not have to choose one or the other. God gives it to us all in Christ. If you're not a believer, maybe for the first time, you're recognizing, okay, so this is what it's about. It's, It's about I have a fundamental need, and I have been chasing after things, and they don't fill I need to chase after Christ. And it comes full circle. All of us come back to Christ, right? Whether it's the 10,000th time or for the first time, it all comes back to Jesus because he is the answer. Real faith grows in corresponding measure to understanding your real need. In a moment, I'm going to pray. and After our services, we're going to have people up here with with lanyards on. If you want to be prayed for or if you've just got questions, you want to talk about what you're experiencing here this morning, we'd love to do that after the service. Let me pray. Father, we are are like this paralytic man. (laughs) We are in a state of paralysis. We are stuck. And you, in grace and mercy came to us in the form of Jesus Christ, forgave us of our sins, pursued us, even though we ran for you, and sacrificed. So Jesus, we are grateful for that work you have done in obedience to the Father. We ask, Father, that you would send your spirit so that we recognize and see Jesus for who he is, the one with all authority given to him, and that we might worship him more truly and more fully. In his name we pray. Amen.